Thank you, Lord, that we have K to third grade in this church. The scripture reading this morning is the sermon text. It is found in Romans chapter 2, verses 17 through 29. But if you call yourself a Jew and rely on the law and boast in God and know his will and approve what is excellent because you are instructed from the law, And if you are sure that you yourself are a guide to the blind, a light to those who are in darkness, an instructor of the foolish, a teacher of children, having in the law the embodiment of knowledge and truth, you then who teach others, do you not teach yourself? Or you preach against stealing, do you steal? You who say that one must not commit adultery, do you commit adultery? You who abhor idols, do you rob temples? You who boast in the law, dishonor God by breaking the law. For as it is written, the name of God is blasphemed among the Gentiles because of you. For circumcision indeed is of value if you obey the law, but if you break the law, your circumcision becomes uncircumcision. So if a man who is uncircumcised keeps the precepts of the law, will not his uncircumcision be regarded as circumcision? Then he who is physically uncircumcised but keeps the law will condemn you who have the written code and circumcision but break the law. For no one is a Jew who is merely one outwardly, nor is circumcision outward and physical, but a Jew is one inwardly, and circumcision is a matter of the heart, by the Spirit, not by the letter. His praise is not from man, but from God. This is God's Word. Join me in prayer. In reading your word, Lord, we are confronted, we are shown ourselves, but we are also shown the Lord Jesus. And so as we look at both in this message this morning, as we look at your text, as we see ourselves and we also see Christ Jesus, Lord, keep us mindful and help us to see what you want us to see. For Jesus' sake and in his name we pray, amen. We're in a Romans series. We've been looking in this series at sin in two categories from three directions over six weeks. We've looked at sin as unrighteousness against God, against oneself, against others. And we've looked at sin as self-righteousness from the same directions. Today is the last installment in this part of this series. Sin as self-righteousness against others which is really, when you think about it, the most obvious kind. Last week I said that sin is self-righteousness against oneself is really the hardest kind to detect. But sin as self-righteousness against others is more or less the most obvious to detect. 
This is when I fault others for what goes unchecked in me. We see it in our text. We see the hypocrisy, verses uh, 21 and 22. Or if I'm otherwise sanctimonious, if I'm pharisaical, I have my brand of sinning but want to act like I don't, or because uh, mine is not yours and I judge your brand of sinning worse than mine, that means in some way I'm better than you. These are more obvious strains and strands of sin as self-righteousness against others. But what we want to do is try to get under the surface and ask, what makes a person self-righteous against others? We've talked about self-righteousness against God two weeks ago, last week, self-righteousness against oneself. But what makes us self-righteous against others? What causes the hypocrisy? What causes the sanctimony? What causes the superiority? I can tell you what the cause is not. It is not making moral judgments. Uh, Moral judgments are are not the problem. All people make moral judgments, and generally we make moral judgments along the lines of five moral concerns. I'm going to draw on sociology, which was my minor in college, so of course I'm an expert. Uh, Sociology and social psychology here for the next uh, couple of minutes, but it's foundational to our text. So those of you who start thinking, social psychology is in the sermon, it's a lecture. I'm getting to the sermon part, okay? Let's do this first. Uh, You're supposed to laugh at that, but it's foundational to our text. Thank you. You did on cue. That's really good. Uh, People who study human interaction say we have five moral concerns. We have five moral foundations that we operate from. One is the uh, fairness reciprocity concern. Reciprocity is just a fancy word for you do for me and I'll do for you, or I do for you, and I expect you to do for me. That's called reciprocity. And so we've got the fairness slash reciprocity concern. This has to do with issues of fairness and unfairness, equal treatment and unequal treatment. What's fair gets debated, of course, but it's a central concern all people have. All people have the fairness, reciprocity, moral concern. Another of the five moral concerns is the harm care concern. The harm care concern. This involves empathy, concern for the suffering of others. Why is it not helping someone when you have the ability to help them is considered to be immoral? It's because it comes out of this harm care concern. Another of the five moral concerns, the third one if you're counting, is the authority respect concern. Why are we outraged when what we deem sacred is treated with disrespect? It comes out of this authority respect concern, this moral foundation that all people are operating from. Uh, Why do we teach Junior to respect his first grade teacher even if she is a bit over officious and seems to want a class full of girls? You can tell we've lived this one in our own home. It's the authority respect concern. If junior doesn't learn how to respect authority, junior is going to have problems in life. We get that. Fourth of the five is the purity disgust concern. Purity disgust concern. This is what we find offensive. Uh, There was a study at uh, University of Pennsylvania some years ago 
that asked students, how would it feel to put on one of Hitler's sweaters? And students said it would feel disgusting, as if uh, Hitler's moral qualities could seep into the fabric of his, of his garment somehow. That's the purity disgust concern. I want no part of what disgusts me morally or violates my sense of purity. The fifth, the, the last of the five, is the in-group loyalty concern. <clears throat> the in-group loyalty concern. Humans segregate. It's our default uh, notion. We, we segregate by ethnicity. We segregate by allegiances politically. By allegiances doctrinally, we segregate even by athletic team allegiances. Uh, and we can feel contempt for those who are outside our in-group. And if there is disloyalty within our in-group, we do not shrug that off. This is the in-group loyalty concern. And studies on this are fascinating. Uh, for instance, uh, people can distinguish between members of their in-group and not who's in and who's out in as little as 170 milliseconds. That shows how ingrained this is in us. When you study brain chemistry, uh, Caucasian brains and Chinese brains will light up in, in those places where, where empathy is monitored in the brain. They activate when Caucasians and Chinese see members of their own group enduring pain but much less do the brains light up when they see a member of another group enduring pain. <coughs> Excuse me. Five moral concerns. Now, I spent a couple minutes with this because we must be clear as we wade into our passage that it is not self-righteous to have moral concerns. It's not self-righteous to make moral judgments. It's not self-righteous to help someone see their need for repentance and accountability. How many times? Well, 100% of the time, whenever I've been involved in a church discipline scenario, the person being disciplined has always come back with, you're being self-righteous against me. And we're not. It's not self-righteous to be the conscience for another person whose conscience is uninformed or unconcerned or even seared in some way. Now, we can certainly misjudge people. We can. And where we do that, we need to display repentance ourselves. But no one is morally neutral. People try to act like they are. Relativism acts like this. But making moral judgments should not be equated with what is self-righteousness. All right? That said... Self-righteousness against others, as presented in our text here, verses 17 to 29 that I read earlier, self-righteousness, as in our text, is faulting another in such a way as either to suggest that I have no faults myself, which comes across as sanctimony and superiority, or it's faulting another for what goes unchecked in me, which is hypocrisy. And what this usually results from is not making moral judgments, as I've tried to establish. What this results from instead is high control, high conformity spiritual dynamics. This is what we're going to talk about. High control, high conformity 
conformity, spiritual dynamics. Just to break our passage into two sections, you've got verses 17 to 29 before you. Verses 17 to 24 is a section, and verses 25 to 29 is a section. Verses 25 to 29 is where we, get, we talk about circumcision. In verses 17 to 24, we have a high control spiritual dynamic. What is that? That is when we are so concerned to offer people an example. What does he say there in, um, in the questions, uh, verse uh, 19 and 20? If you're a, a, a guide to the blind, a light to those who are in darkness, verse 19, verse 20, an instructor of the foolish, a teacher of children, having the law, the embodiment of knowledge and truth. We'll be the light. We'll be the guide. We'll be the shepherd. We'll be the teacher. We'll be the, the exemplar of how to live. And that turns into a, a high control kind of spiritual dynamic where we're so concerned to offer people an example, we don't offer them a savior. Self-righteousness comes out of that. And then verses 25 to 29, we have a high conformity spiritual dynamic which overemphasizes an external standard or measure like the law and circumcision in this particular context, overemphasizes the in-group loyalty concern, to put it within those uh, five moral concerns I was mentioning earlier. High control is about the example. High conformity is about the external standard. And this is how we're coming at sin as self-righteousness against others. So first, sin as self-righteousness against others as a high-control spiritual dynamic. When we're so keen to offer an example, we're so focused on being an example, exemplarity, when that's our focus, so keen to offer an example, we don't offer a Savior. This is verses 17 through 24. I'm not saying that we should not offer good examples or point to good examples. Clearly, there are good examples among us, all around us. But your example, your good example on your best day and mine will not redeem anyone. It might put them uh, close to the scent of the gospel. It, it, it might uh, impact them deeply. They might be forever changed seeing you do something and they think, well, I need to do the same thing. We all get how that works. But if we're trying so hard to be an example, we can get very self-beholding in that and might actually push people away from the one who can save them. The Scarlet Letter, Nathaniel Hawthorne's classic that story is set in a high-control spiritual community that colonial New England was. High-control meaning nobody there took sin lightly. Good examples enforced. Bad examples punished. In the stocks. Shamed. Shunned. Arthur Dimsdale was the bright young minister in that New England colony. And Hester Prynne was a woman in his congregation, and she gave birth to a little girl named Pearl. And only Hester Prynne knew that Arthur Dimsdale was the father. Pearl was his child. But no one knew that. No one could know that because Arthur Dimsdale, there's one point where Nathaniel Hawthorne says he, it's, it's as if the people in the community thought he was walking above the ground. 
And so the community condemnation fell on Hester Prynne. Arthur Dimsdale, meanwhile, got to continue his impressive ministry. Hester Prynne got to wear the scarlet letter. But at night, the young pastor would take a whip and he would go into a secluded place where he lived and he would beat himself with the whip due to his guilt and his cowardice. Instead of confessing his sin and dealing with the consequences, he hid and drew blood on his back. It was the worst thing he could think to do to himself short of killing himself. Until his dying day, when the truth finally came out, he was so concerned to give the people of that community an example in himself that he could not and did not give them a savior. He tried so hard to hide his sin of unrighteousness against Hester, but that was driven, that hiding was driven by his sin of self-righteousness against the entire community and that he denied them the Savior they needed and he needed for sins of unrighteousness and self-righteousness both. Arthur Dimsdale was a hypocrite. But he was a hypocrite from trying so hard to be a light to his community. This is getting under the surface of self-righteousness where we need to go. And in the same way, in this context of Romans 2, the Jewish people under law, and Paul knew this from firsthand experience. Consider who Paul was before his conversion. Pharisee of Pharisees, absolutely zealous for the law of God. Persecuted the church because he thought it rivaled the Judaism that he held so dear. The Jewish people, in the context of Romans 2, they were called by God to be a light to the Gentiles. That's how Isaiah puts it in Isaiah 60. The calling of Israel. Be a light to the Gentiles. Paul even draws on this imagery in verse 19. If you're sure that you yourself are a guide to the blind and a light to those in darkness. Who's in darkness? The Gentiles. They know, the Jewish reader knows, Isaiah 60 stands behind verse 19. Verse 20, an instructor of the foolish, a teacher of children, having in the law the embodiment of knowledge and truth. But then all through this chapter, what, he, what is he saying to them, to the Jewish reader, who chapter 2 is primarily for, but is also saying to us, reading over their shoulder, you do the very things the law condemns. So much so, look at verse 24. As it is written, and this is also from Isaiah, Isaiah 52, the name of God is blasphemed among the Gentiles because of you. What a bitter irony. That to the people with the promises and the patriarchs and, and, and the law, the prophets would say, we who think we're the solution are really the problem. How could this be? We think we're the solution. We think we're the examples. Because we know better, but in not doing the better we know, and yet acting like we do, it's not just that our example is eventually shot. It's that people are cut off from the Savior. Verse 24, the name of God is blasphemed among the Gentiles because of you. Is this still happening now? This wasn't just a first century Jewish problem. It's a 21st century American evangelical problem. The price of hypocrisy is not our example is shot, though it is. The price is a higher price. People turn on Christ because of us. 
People turn away from Christ because of us. The name of God is blasphemed among the Gentiles because of you. That's bad news. A high-control spiritual dynamic trying so hard to stay away from sin, orchestrating all these rules, all these extras, so that we stay away from sin. And, and for sake of appearance, we, we, we emphasize the exemplar. We've got to live right because we know better. And we do. We do know better. And we do need to live right. But what motivates right living is not setting controls for it. Setting rules. Trying to be an example. Trying not to get it wrong. That's the mistake of all fundamentalism. It's why I am ardently not a fundamentalist. It doesn't work. What motivates our doing right is knowing Jesus did everything right for me. And thereby my approval with God, my acceptance with him has been gained for me and given to me by Jesus, by his merits. And because I love him for this, in response to his first loving me, I want to obey him. I get to. I don't want to do anything that puts something in another's way of getting the same gift of reconciliation with God from Jesus that I've been given. In a high-control spiritual dynamic, obedience is often framed as a living up to something. But this actually invites hypocrisy when I can't live up to it and know I can't, but can't afford to say I don't. New Testament obedience. And we didn't look at the very first part of chapter 1, but chapter 1, verse 5. Chapter 1, verse 5, he says that he has apostleship to bring about the obedience of faith for the sake of his name, Jesus' name, among the nations. And the same thing is said in chapter 16, verse 26. And so this idea of the obedience of faith bookends Romans. But New Testament obedience, the obedience of faith, is not live up to this. It's live into this. Live into the love of God for you in Christ and respond accordingly. Present your life as a living sacrifice. Where does that come in Romans? Chapter 12. After what? After 11 chapters of being told what God has done for you in Christ. And it starts in chapters 1 through 3 with being told about our sin. Because until we see our sin, we don't see our need for grace. And until we, see our, we don't see our need for grace, we don't see the Savior. A friend once prayed for my oldest son who bears a biblical name, Caleb. And Caleb was a guy in Scripture who was an example to follow. He's one of the few people in Scripture about whom nothing negative is ever said. God says of Caleb, the Old Testament Caleb, he has a different spirit and he follows me wholeheartedly. What a name to put on someone. And my friend, praying for my son, said, Lord, I pray not that he would start living up to that name, but he instead would live into his name. And it is the difference between believing I have to go make myself better, behavior modification, 
instead of believing, Christ is renewing me as I respond to him. I don't need behavior modification. I need a renovation of the heart. Behavior modification will always let me down. I won't be thorough enough. I won't go far enough. Verse 19, if you're sure that you yourself are a guide to the blind, a light to those in darkness, you know, you will never want to be a light if you feel you have to be. Martin Luther, who we talked about in October, one of the reformers, hated God, was so resentful because he knew himself to be a sinner. And, and he was in this high control uh, kind of context in, in a monastery and he couldn't be what he, what he knew he was supposed to be. And one of his spiritual advisors said, you need to love God better, Martin. And he goes, love him? I hate him. And I'm a monk. What do you do with a guy like that? He started reading Romans. You'll never want to be a light if some high-control spiritual leader is trying to, to make you be. See, it's one thing to carry around a flashlight. It's another thing to be saddled with one of these things aiming at me right now. One of these stage lights. See, I'm looking right at them. You're looking at me from them. But that one right up there is a pretty, I've been up in the ceiling. Okay? That's a pretty hefty light right up there. And a high-control spiritual dynamic emphasizes the exemplar. It's like taking one of those stage lights and hanging it around you and saying, hey, go, this is the light you're supposed to be. Go shine this at people. Not only is that exhausting, not only is it exhausting to live in Christian community, always trying so hard to prove yourself holy to God and everyone else, but you know what you will do? I mean, this is the irony. You will eclipse someone else's way to Jesus. Now, God is greater than, than you, and he will override you. But you don't want to be that kink in the chain. You want to be the, 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 next, the next link. You don't want God to have to go around you because you're a hypocrite or because you're, you're sanctimonious or because you're superiority. You want God to, to use you. Like, I'm not saying, again, that, that God doesn't use good examples I'm saying we can emphasize ourselves and others as examples so much that we never give people a Savior. What was true back then for these that Paul was writing in Romans 2, the same holds true for many of us in the church. This is 19th century author day, I guess, in the pulpit here, because uh, the next one I'll give you is a guy named Ambrose Bierce. Not as famous as... Nathaniel Hawthorne, but the same century, same kind of novelist. Bierce is the guy who gave us the statement, speak when you are angry and you'll make the best speech you'll ever regret. Uh, that comes from Ambrose Bierce. But Bierce also defined a Christian cynically. Bierce said, a Christian is one who believes the Bible to be a divinely inspired book, admirably suited to the spiritual needs of his neighbor. How's that? He means we're good at applying to others what we don't apply as well to ourselves. Do you remember in a previous sermon that I said, human beings are neither basically good nor basically bad. We have those binary categories. People, hey, I think people are basically good. No, I think people are basically bad. Yeah. 
and it's neither. What we are basically is for ourselves in such a way that sin is always a live option. That's what people basically are. And if I may quote uh, Carolyn Weber in this context, this is from her memoir of Coming to Faith called Surprised by Oxford. She's a Canadian girl who meets an American guy at Oxford in England, not the Oxford down uh, south of us here. And, uh, and, and by his example, yes, but by his resolute testimony of the goodness of Christ to him, uh, Carolyn comes to faith and actually ends up becoming his wife as well. But in coming to faith, she had to deal with what sin was, not just what sin was, but that sin was in her. Listen to how she puts it. I could grasp remote sins, overt acts of terror, hatred, atrocities flashing across the nightly news in faraway lands or happening to people I did not know. It was the immediacy of sin that was more slippery, the sins right under my nose, under my own skin. I did not understand the pervasiveness of sin, how I simultaneously wove it and got caught in it, and just how far-reaching its effects were. We always assume that its great gnarled roots lie somewhere else. At least I know I did. I always felt certain that someone else was responsible for casting shadows on my vista. But the pond ripples out as a result of the flinging of small pebbles or the dropping of large rocks. Either way, the waves bring it all back to shore. In Romans chapters 1 and 2, we get the waves crashing ashore by way of pebbles and rocks both. That's Romans chapters 1 and 2. See, if you read this in chapter 2 here and you wonder, well, maybe God expected too much from his old covenant people. I mean, did he put too much on the Jewish people, there being a light to the nations? Wow, can anybody be that? Well, the same call is on us now. We Gentiles in Christ. But even after all the links to which God goes to bring us out of darkness into light, the difficulty for Old Covenant and New Covenant people both, for both Jews and Gentiles, the difficulty is not that God expects too much of us. The difficulty is we like the darkness. The light comes on for us to see the glory of God in the face of Jesus, but the light also comes on us on for us to see our sin for what it is in order to see God's grace for what it is. It is grace for sin. In fact, we probably ought to, ought to never talk about grace without saying it's grace for sin. We ought to make it a hyphenated word. That's bulky and clunky, but it would slow us down to think about what is grace. It's grace for sin. That's why it exists. That's what it's for. Christ bore our unrighteousness and our self-righteousness both on his cross, which is to say none of us are exempt from needing grace, no matter if my contribution to it was the pebble in his sandal, as it were, or if mine was the boulder in front of his tomb. The ripples from sin are caused by all of us. All of us throw something into this pond. A high-control spiritual dynamic, it does not stop me from sinning. Not really. It just makes me more drawn to hiding. And in hiding, there's hypocrisy. And my sin is kept up with, but because I'm simultaneously just trying to keep up with an appearance. Neither does a high-conformity spiritual dynamic stop me from sinning. 
And we get this briefly in verses 25 through 29. We move from a high control to a high conformity spiritual dynamic. High conformity meaning it overemphasizes the external standard or measure. Overemphasis is the problem in high conformity spiritual dynamics. He, said, he puts before us the physical act of circumcision, which was really important to the Jewish people. Why? Because the progenitor of the nation, Abraham, was circumcised as an adult. And that circumcision on him as an adult was a sign and seal of, the, of belonging to God by the covenant terms God specified. Why circumcision? Because the covenant involved seed and descendants, thus circumcision. But here in verses 25 to 29, Paul sounds a lot like Jesus in his Sermon on the Mount. You think of the Sermon on the Mount, Matthew chapters 5 through 7, that place where Jesus said things like, you have heard it said, but I say to you. You've heard the law says, don't commit adultery, but I say to you, if you look with lustful intent. In other words, you've heard the law says this, but I tell you the law also applies to this. In the case of adultery, the law applies to the lust also that leads to it. Not only does the law address murder, Jesus talks about in his Sermon on the Mount, but it also applies to the anger that informs it, etc. Likewise, verses 25 to 29 here. Paul's saying to a Jewish readership, predominantly in chapter 2, you have heard, you've been taught all your life, you think circumcision is what makes you a true Jew. But Paul tells them circumcision is just an outer conformity if there is no inward change. The law is just an external standard if it's not written on the heart. To the Jew who overemphasized law and circumcision for his right standing before God, law and circumcision being external standards and measures of who's in with God and not, Paul says something very surprising to that mindset. He says it's not an automatic end. Verse 28, for no one is a Jew who is merely one outwardly, nor is circumcision outward and physical, but a Jew is one inwardly, and circumcision is a matter of the heart, by the Spirit, not by the letter. His praise is not from man, but from God. He is saying to his Jewish readers here, you must be born again. You must have your heart circumcised. You must have a Savior. Your example isn't enough on its best day. In a high conformity spiritual dynamic, you're always measuring yourself by the external measure. And it's very easy to overemphasize the standard and the measure. In this context, it's law and, and circumcision. In an American evangelical context, it's conservative credentials or what kind of church this is and isn't or what kind of music we sing and don't. And in overemphasizing, you dismiss and you condemn others who don't abide the same standard, meet the same measure. And in doing that, you not only block their way to the Savior they need, you block your own way. Get out of your own way. In conclusion, let me wrap this up this way. We've been in chapters 1 and 2 for six weeks now. Through chapters 1 and 2, there's an implicit woe running through here. You see it in verse uh, 18 in chapter 1. The wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all the ungodliness and unrighteousness of men. You see it in verse 5 in chapter 2. Because of your hard and impenitent heart, you're storing up wrath for yourself, wrath for the unrighteous, wrath for the self-righteous. If you wanted to put all this in a word, woe, not W-H-O-A like woe horse, or woe, that's a great gift. But woe, W-O-E, 
right? You've seen this word in Scripture, woe. Woe to us. And I've been thinking about the word woe because last week I quoted Matthew 11, and it's there. I quoted Matthew 11, the reference to the cities where Jesus visited and they didn't repent. And Jesus says, woe to you, Chorazin. Woe to you, Bethsaida. The miracles that had been done and and you had been done in Sodom and Gomorrah, if they'd been done in Tyre and Sidon, which were Gentile cities up the coast, they would have repented, but you didn't. And so woe to you. We know Jesus often directed woes at high control, high conformity spirituality and spiritual leaders. When Jesus walked our earth, his toughest words were for the religious, for those who felt they had the end with God, who, who, but who overemphasized high conformity to an external standard and measure and missed the heart of things, missed his heart for people and for them too. The Lord wept over Jerusalem. But those woes, W-O-E woes, woe to you. When Jesus goes there, and Paul has gone there too in Romans 1 and 2, although indirectly, Woe to us because of our sins of unrighteousness and self-righteousness against God, ourselves and others. Understand something. Woe does not mean curse you. Just as wrath doesn't mean rage. Wrath is God's considered hatred of that which hurts us and vandalizes his shalom. Wrath doesn't mean rage. Woe doesn't mean curse you. It's conveying distress over you. Distress over us when Jesus says, whoa, it's, it's not a curse but a cry. I can't believe you're like this. I can't believe I come to your town and I do these things and you won't repent. I can't believe you're this hypocritical or sanctimonious or superior when you've tasted my grace. How can you be? That's the sense. Woe is not God detaching himself but engaging us. If there was no woe to us, There would be no grace to us because there would be no care for us. And see, the marvel of the Bible, you have to understand this, the marvel of the Bible is not that God has grace for the unrighteous, it's that God has grace for the self-righteous. The self-righteous in the end are really in a worse category. We're told about our sin, never to rub our faces in it, but to show us our need for grace. And the self-righteous have the hardest route to get there. It's almost like they're inoculated. It's like they've gotten the vaccination, which is just enough of the illness to make sure you never get it. Sin never has the last word in the gospel. That's the good news. I've given you bad news in this text. This text is bad news. But the good news is sin never has the last word. We're just in Romans 2. There's... A few more chapters to come, and it gets better. While we were yet sinners in our unrighteousness and self-righteousness both, Christ died for us. Very few people, Paul goes on to say, would die for a good man. Some would. Most won't. But God demonstrates his love for us in this, while we were yet sinners. And sin, we now understand, hopefully after six weeks looking at it, is both unrighteous against God, against oneself, against others, and it's self-righteous in the same declension. To see our sin is to see our need for grace. And when we see our need for grace, we see the grace giver. We see the one in whom there was no unrighteousness, but also one in whom there was no self-righteousness. The one who offers us his 
merits, his righteousness in place of our unrighteousness and self-righteousness so that we can live for him who said to us in Matthew 11 that his yoke is easy and his burden is light, meaning he's not high controlling, he's not high conformity. The one who is the friend of sinners. We do not have a high priest who is unable to empathize with our weaknesses, but one who was tempted in every way as we are yet without sin. He loves sinners. He changes us from the inside out, not through heavy rules, heavy conformity. That's what we do. And it's about control. And it's about appearance. But not Jesus. He's the one who is for us, even though we've been against Him. We've been against ourselves. And who, and, and who is His image and likeness? And we've been against others. That's sin, but sin never has the last word. Jesus does. Would you stand with me? Let's pray and have our benediction. We'll-